Hello, welcome to another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast. My name's Liam Bishop and I'm a writer from Leeds and I'm here today with Richard Price, poet, novelist and translator. Richard grew up in Renfrewshire, Scotland and published his first collection of poems, Tube Shelter Perspective, in 1993. Since then he's gone on to publish nine more collections as well as a novel, a collection of short stories and several books of non-fiction. Price is adept at mixing lyrical and established poetic meters with more avant-garde techniques. Often, this results in a deep and tender appeal to the emotions, like in Small World, a collection about a father and his two daughters. In The Owner of the Sea, however, Price has undertaken an act of retelling, and it's a retelling of three Inuit tales. The tales feature metamorphosis, hunting, and the majesty of the natural world, told in verse which is, as Price writes in the introduction, very loose and yet tight, allowing context and a certain deadpan modernism, a surreal minimalism to accentuate the weight of each of the situations in which each of the central characters find themselves. Richard, join me from London. Can you just give us uh, an introduction as to how you're brought to the attention of these Inuit tales uh, and what it is that provoked you to retell them? Well, um, I came across the the Inuit tales in a rather a roundabout way. I've worked for many years with an artist, uh, Ronald King, who is a, a master of the artist book. And we've made books together since about 1999. And for some time, uh, I think in the late 50s and early 60s, he was in Canada uh, as an artist. And he came across the Sedna myth which, um, if I can um, badly paraphrase, is about a kind of sea goddess. Um, she is the spirit that you have to um, make sure is on side. Otherwise, you're going to experience famine. Um, so she's responsible particularly for the sea creatures, um, the sea mammals in particular. She doesn't have any fingers. I'm not going to tell you why. She doesn't, that's part of the story. She doesn't have any fingers. Um, and this uh, myth, you can call it that, um, I, I hold these terms with tongs because they sound sort of anthropological. Um, and I, um, it, 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 on the one hand, I want to hold that distance because I have that distance. It's, it's not my culture. On the other hand, I want to say that there is that distance and um, that's not really how it is. Ron uh, was in Canada, he came across this myth, became very, very interested in it, but didn't find a way of making art. So this had obsessed him for about half a century. And then probably six or seven years ago, he got in touch and said, I want to make another book. Can you provide maybe six lyric poems to tell part of Seddon's story? He pointed me to um, the book by Frédéric Legrand and uh, Jarek Houston, which is called The Sea Woman, Sedna in Inuit Shamanism and Art in the Eastern Arctic. We made this beautiful book, um, uh, edition of, I don't know, about 60 or 70, beautifully done by Ron in blind embossing, so um, just using the shadow um, to make the, uh, the drawings and um, my um, fragile lyrics floating on top in grey. But it was too late to stop. I, I got really, really interested in the Sedna myth and wrote many, many more poems expanding 
um, the, the brief to, to take in the fuller narrative of Sedna. Um, you can't really get the full narrative of Sedna. There's all kinds of different stories. Um, so I, I had to cut a line somehow, but it's a much, much bigger piece. And I sent them to my publisher for publishing in PN Review. And he was very, very enthusiastic. He, he published the whole sequence in that magazine, which is quite unusual. It's a really nice story of how it came to be, a story of a story, if you will. Um, and it's the fact that these stories were found in some way. Did you have any kind of pre-knowledge of, of, of these stories or Inuit culture? No, they, I, did, I, did, I did not. Um, again, I, I stress that distance. People who know your poetry um, or people who don't, you know, will be used to seeing you kind of, a, you know, experimenting with different styles. You know, you're not afraid to, I guess, go into the history of poetry and, um, and experiment and play around with different styles, different meters. Why, you know, why don't you explain how you chose to construct these tales? Yeah, so I think, I think the first thing uh, I was thinking about was how all the poems would work together. So that there needs to be a kind of architecture for each sequence and also an architecture for the whole book. So... Um, I wanted to keep the sense that this was um, going to be a suspenseful set of stories. So suspense is really, really important to the book. And as um, a lyric poet, this is completely liberating. It's a completely different sort of architecture. It's poetry on the move. It's much closer to um, uh, uh, a set of looks to camera. Um, uh, theatrical drama. It's much more like that. But um, at heart, I'm a lyric poet. So I'm, I'm a slow poet. I'm, a, I'm a, a writer of, you know, slow poetry where you're meant to be thoughtful all the time. Um, and things are meant to have uh, dense meanings. Um, so how to square that? Well, um, I suppose to, to bring up uh, cinema again, it's to use cinema techniques like the look to camera, the fourth wall going just now and again, it's to use jump cuts. So suddenly uh, one scene is implied by the voice and then, whoa, another voice. It might be the same person, but in a completely different situation. Sometimes it's almost a chorus figure, particularly in Sedna, where the people in the community are going, oh my God, she's at it again. Um, <laughs> The reader has to keep on their toes because I don't always tell you who's speaking. Um, and again, that's the kind of lyric drag. So I, I'm, I'm trying to hybridize uh, narrative with lyric. Part of that is a kind of deadpan humor, uh, particularly for the gruesome things, um, things which you can barely think can exist. Uh, they are just so horrific. But, you know, if Tarantino can do it, then I can do it. That kind of schlock um, yeah. which has an amazing energy to it i think it's underused in poetry um, we are we're all meant to be kind and thoughtful well maybe you don't have to be um, maybe the story is there and then the reader can be as kind as thoughtful and generous as they want and it has this sense of being in you know an epic um a big sort of narrative poem um, but it also has a very contemporary sense being informed by um, a desire to you know really apply some 
uh, more modern narrative techniques, if you will. So there are a lot of gaps uh, in the narrative. Um, and you said there how you sometimes do and don't account for these gaps. For Kivyok, for instance, a, the, is the Wanderer and the Hunter, and you have these, you have three sections, and the kind of book is sort of um, overarched by these, this very sort of female uh, presence in Sedna, and then Kivyok, Wanderer, and Hunter. Before we go into his narrative, I just wondered if you could explain a bit more about the contrast between those two. Sedna is, um, to begin with, a kind of put-upon daughter of um, a father godlike figure, pressurised to, to marry. So really, roughly speaking, uh, in the first third of her narrative, she's put upon. But gradually, she begins to take on power in some ways, uh, conventional managed power, she, she begins to dictate. And um, she is terribly punished for that. And she goes through another cycle of being put upon, pressure on her to do um, what her father wants. But again, right at the end, she has one power, a very hard one power, but she has done that. And in conventional terms, is taking on a kind of almost a patriarchal role. Again, these are my ideas. These are my interpretations. Um, the myth is ambiguous, complex, contradictory, and you can see it in all kinds of different ways. But Kivyuk, um, Kivyuk has the reputation, I understand, of being kind and generous. Um, he is loved in a way I don't think Sedna is. Sedna is feared and respected. And I find that really interesting because Kibiyuk is a very violent man. He is a murderer. Um, he's a trickster and not always in a nice way, to say the least. Um, he is um, full of movement. He is doing the moving. He is moving around. He is doing the tricks. That's not what Sedna does. Sedna is moved. She is literally transported across the ocean. Kivyuk commands the ocean, uh, or at least the surface of it. Um, so there is a really big contrast in that. And Kivyuk is learning. He, he's learning what relationships with women should be. And he's learning kindness and tact. Um, and it's those sorts of things which um, he is best loved for. Um, even though he's a criminal of the worst kind, there is a kind of um, understanding that you can get through that and still be respected in an affectionate way. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. If you were to go on, um, if you were to Google now Kivyuk and Sedna, um, particularly with Kivyuk, you would get this, um, you know, you get a Wikipedia you know, explanation of who it is. And it would be this kind of quite glorious, uh, you know, wanderer, hunter, the kind of classic archetypal fairy tale idea of um, a kind of a hunter and a male figure. Um, and yeah, you don't get that with, with Senna. And there's something really interesting that you're doing in this book, which is about, and it's very implicit and it's very, very, just very neatly done without kind of forcing it onto the reader. It's how you sort of play with expectations of, uh, gender and 
um, gender roles, and this and it, it creates this very quite uncomfortable sense of, um, you know, who am I? Who am I reading about here? And, and you kind of you're always kind of challenging expectations. But yeah, Kivyuk is violent. He is absent. But the gaps in his narrative, and it's these kind of moments of violence. You talked about being like if Tarantino can do it. What makes you think is that there is a bit of a difference between Tarantino and yourself is that. With cinema, I guess we get, in some sense, an implied explanation for why. But with yours, sometimes we don't really understand the reasons for violence. I'm thinking um, there's a, in, in Section 5, um, there's a poem called Needle. Um, and then she took a long needle and pushed it into her daughter's ear right into the brain. You don't survive that. But we don't get really too much explanation or understand why that's happened. So I wonder, did you find these moments difficult to explain or not explain? Some of the, discon the discontinuities are really interesting. Uh, and I don't want to sort of um, talk to... I think the, um, the way that the mother murders her daughter... Well, I, <laughs> I, su I suppose I I've, my narrative has failed there because I was trying to prepare for that. Um, it's, it's rivalry between the mother and the, the daughter. And um, there are a few clues about the rivalry, not about the extent of the, the violence. I, I understand that. But um, th this mother and daughter, who are also wolves, um, they're both, um, they're both wolves and women at the same time. Um, they had been living isolated with only a, um, a bit of wood for company, shall we say upturns Kiviuk and uh, suddenly they're rivals, they're love rivals. And the way they, um, they talk about, actually the way they talk begins to unravel their rivalries, it begins to show them. Maybe it's a little bit of a steep incline. <laughs> uh, again, um, completely open about um, how some people have not got what I wanted. And I think that's one case. Another case is uh, quite a few people have said right at the beginning of the Kivyuk sequence um, that it's about Kivyuk and his grandmother, but it's not. Uh, Kivyuk is as uh, the neighbor of the little boy whose grandmother is there. And I thought that was clear as crystal. And I quite like the lateral way that I introduced Kivyuk. But I think people have, have um, not really got that. Again, um, that's part of the, uh, the risk that you take in writing very, very quickly. So the Kivyuk sequence was written extremely quickly, almost like a shamanistic experience. <laughs> I was in a kind of uh, dwarm, a kind of, oh, wow, and then this happened and this happened. And um, perhaps I haven't completely attended to the dramatic art, but I think that's okay. I don't, think, I don't think it's so much that. I think it's just more about the unexplained sense of violence. I don't think it's so much about the causality of the narrative. I think it's more about, you know, why why is there so much violence? Why are these people violent? With Tarantino, I think <laughs> Tarantino is probably not a great analogy, but with, with, with the Tarantino film, you kind of expect it. You know what you're getting into with this kind of, Narrative. Why is there so much violence within community? We don't get the reasons for that, if that makes sense. I think I would turn it around the other way and think about um, Aeschylus and the Furies and the end of that um, 
at the end of the Oresteia. It's not how did we get here through violence, it's how do we stop the bloody stuff? So you, you, have, to, you have to show how absolutely horrific it is. Maybe it's random. Maybe there are deep-seated reasons. I don't care. I want it to stop. And um, you might say, well, we can only do that when we know the reasons. Um, maybe, but that's not what, that's not what Aeschylus is saying. Aeschylus is, is saying um, it's going to stop, and this is how we're going to stop it. That's actually by the rule of law. Um, again, no law is perfect, um, so that's uh, quite a hierarchical thing to say. But it seems to me that one of the things that these myths are doing is presenting um, extreme violence um, and saying, how on earth are we going to stop this? What sort of rules and behavior necessary to stop this? Yeah, and it's one of those moments as well where you, the reader, you know, you kind of go, oh, well, we're not anything like this anymore. We're much more, you know, we're more ad advanced in inverted commas. And then you kind of sit there and you only have to think about what's going on in the world, and you <laughs> you start to realize actually, yeah, we're not um, we're not that much different. Um, and it's that kind of that distance between sort of feels very near, and then sometimes very far away. Um, th there are other kinds of gaps, and gaps seems quite constituent of the people's lives, people's characters. And Kivyuk, for instance, is away from his family quite a lot uh, or he's away from his community um, and so people will you know his family are experiencing to some extent the gaps of their father gaps of their um, tribesmen or, or what have you and imagine that's the same for a lot of other male figures in these communities and the, the kind of expectations of what uh, they either thought they had to do or, or what they think supposed to do I just wonder, you've written a wonderful collection about family um, and fatherhood in Small World. What was it like writing about Kivyuk? Um, and we sort of touched on some of the realities of actually who this person was. I wonder what it was like for you comparing those experiences to something like Small World. I suppose, um, well, it's a stark difference, um, that's for sure. Um, a book like Small World is concerned with domestic space. And in the last 20, 30 years, um, conventionally, um, women writers have occupied that space and have rightly uh, valorized it, have um, said that this is work. Um, and there are all kinds of richnesses there. And they have applied that. And they have also criticized uh, male poetry for being um, for, for really obliterating that space. Um, in terms of small world and, and earlier uh, sequences like handheld and lucky day, I have turned my attention to the domestic space um, as a man talking about children, the, the work of uh, child rearing, um, the, um, the shifting dynamic between men and women. Um, in, in my case, of course, men and men can raise children, women and women can raise children. Um, but in, in my case, uh, that shifting dynamic in a, in a relationship of parenthood. Um, and paying attention to the, uh, the detail of children. Um, so that is really what Small World and, and Lucky Day are about. Um, and that's what my next book will be about, Late Gifts. So um, uh, I have a, a young son and I'm now a kind of old middle-aged guy. 
um, and, and that book will be about that. Um, the contrast with Kibiuk, who doesn't need to worry about that. He's out there, <laughs> he's out there in his kayak, uh, killing bears. <laughs> yeah, he is, yeah. Uh, whatever he wants to do. Um, so what I've, what I've done with, with Kibiuk is, is shown how polarized that community is in terms of gender. Um, and just presented the excitements and the problems of that. Um, towards the end, um, he's still trying to be a kid, a male kid or, or, a, or a teenager boy, still trying to tease grown-up women um, to, to seduce them. And um, the first one, who's a, who's a swan, just won't, won't take it. Um, says, you know, which, which arm of yours do you want me to break first? Um, and the, the um, and he's like that shuts him up. And the other one, the the goose woman, is in tears about his behaviour, which he just sees as teasing and fun and all all part of banter. But it but it's not, and he has to come to terms with that. Stones and shells. Just as Kibiuk was approaching another remote house, a lemming crossed his path. Kibiuk saw it was the one he'd rescued from a rock pool, oh, an age ago. Listen, Kibiuk, said the lemming without even saying hello. You saved my life once, and now I'm going to save yours. When you lie down to sleep tonight, make sure to protect your vitals. There are large shells here and flat stones. Place them over your body but conceal them under your clothes. If you do, you might just survive tonight. Kivyuk thanked the lemming, who disappeared in a hurry. What are my vitals? Kivyuk asked himself before scooping up half the rocky beach. Then he walked up to the house. There were two sisters in the house, and they were of a kind that's relatively rare these days. They had scales from the midriff down, and their bodies ended with a sharp tail. They welcomed Kivyuk, be our guest, and he spent a happy enough evening with them. When it came to bedtime, he settled down on a bunk and pretended to go to sleep. They started to talk about Kivyuk as if he would be a tasty piece of meat. They wondered what tools and clothes they'd make from his bones and his skin. The sisters turned to another subject that interested them. Which of the women should get to kill Kivyuk? Matteo's sharper than your sister, said the older woman. He won't know he's been attacked before it's too late. I like the pleasure of jabbing a man, said the younger sister. A tail should not be too sharp, or, or it's, it's all over so quickly. The first sister had to agree, and she wanted to see Kivyuk writhe with her sister on top of him, jabbing him in every tender part. Well, sharpen your tail a little, she said. We're not monsters. There seems to be this interest in, I don't call it restriction on space, a kind of an island space, a space that has boundaries. Um, and you see, you've, you've sort of gone through, um, especially the, in Small World, for instance, there was quite a lot of imagery of, from the sea. But is there a kind of interest in the island as, a, as an idea, as a metaphor? Oh, very much so. Very much so. I, uh, <laughs> I've used the island many times. So 
I suppose most obviously in my uh, novel, uh, The Island, and, uh, which um, uses images of islands from a traffic island all the way to the, the central island, which is the uh, island based on uh, the Scottish island Grunard, where they um, tested anthrax in the 1940s. Um, so that uh, novel is about um, a senior civil servant and his daughter on the day of um, an airborne crisis. Um, so this is written well, well before uh, the pandemic, um, but it's about um, his breakdown, um, but also the kind of social breakdown um, as something like Grunard's pathogens gets out and begins to affect everyone's breathing. So, um, so I suppose that's a um, that's a uh, technical description. But in terms of symbolic uh, ideas, um, I'm both attracted to the uh, to an island as a kind of misanthrope, someone who just wants a bit of peace and quiet. Also, as a very sociable person who uh, believes that um, it's actually a sea of islands and there's all, all kinds of intercommunication between them. Um, so I, um, I am interested in that, absolutely. Um, I don't think anyone wants to be on a forced island, but um, sometimes you want to go to islands um, just, just to have that seclusion, uh, that, uh, that um, Zen moment to, to gather ourselves. I don't know, obviously lots of islands in Scotland. If you ever visit them as a, as a child or as an adult. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So um, my mum and dad would, would pop us four boys into um, a motor caravan <laughs> and drive for about six or seven hours up to uh, the northwest of Scotland. And um, in fact, that Grunard Island was very close to where um, our beach was and we would just have a week or two. Um, so there's this whole innocence and evil coexisting with each other um, there. Um, and um, I made a radio program about that um, a few years ago, um, about how it was just so close. And we, we interviewed people um, who had actually been there at the time that they were um, putting the anthrax experiments onto the island. Unbeknownst to me, um, this very remote deserted beach had been matted with military activity during the Second World War. And um, that's why they used the island they already. This series is all about, you know, beneath the surface. And it's, it's, it's not intentional, I think, that we have two titles so far that have, have spoke about the sea because sea, you know, the sea does create distance. You know, we talk about being oceans away from people and, and surrounded by the sea if you're on an island. And it, it's a kind of sense of distance. And I wanted to speak about um, song you you reference song quite a lot in the owner of the sea you referenced it in previous collections um but i wondered what song is i wonder what song means to you in the context of being a poet and uh, a writer there are several ways to answer this one is biographical and that is um, the reason why i'm a writer at all is because i was very interested in lyrics as a teenager so the, the classic singer-songwriters, um, you know, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, 
they were really, really important to me. Um, and that's how I began to write what I thought was poetry, but it was really somewhere between um, a speaking voice and a singing voice. And that's how I perform my poetry now. Um, it's not singing, but it's not the usual poetry voice either. Um, there's something there which is in that space. Um, to me, a song is um, not a cure-all. Um, there is a, a course, a lyricizing, a, a sort of valorization of, um, of song as if that's a fantastic thing. Song is very, very powerful. The, um, the shaman has to make a kind of song, has to make a kind of movement or dance, um, often has to commit violence. He has to come back uh, with the signs of blood. Um, those are to be treated seriously and carefully in one sense. Um, song is very, very powerful. It's like poetry. It's an intensifier. It's not a truth teller. It's, uh, it's a state changer. Sometimes it is a benevolent tool, but it, either way, if it's not, it has this sort of sense of enchantment. And Well, for Kuviuk, um, uh, at the end of the sequence, um, it folds back to the beginning of the sequence. So, that, so the little boy and the grandmother, who are neighbours of Kibiuk, right at the beginning of the story, they have what's called a hole in the universe. And it's a little puddle that the grandmother, who is an Angiguk uh, sorceress, um, she has made. And that little boy can swim into the puddle and pop up at another puddle somewhere else in the settlement. Um, when he's doing that, he's essentially in song time. Right at the end of the sequence, um, Kivyuk has to go and find his wife and family. And they are birds, so they can fly across all the islands to an island where they want to be. But he can't possibly do that, not even in a kayak. He has to use a kind of science fiction. And that is find um, um, another dimension, uh, another hole in the universe. And as, uh, as I paraphrase it, he travels by song. And that song is a kind of summary of all his adventures. Um, he's sort of telling you what he's done in the song. So you've got this um, travel device, which is going forward across immense distance by summarizing and lyricizing what's happened in the past. Um, so that's, that's a phenomenal paradox, but it's also telling you the power of song. <laughs> Because songs are about what are you going to do next? How, where's your future? Um, even when they're telling very, very old stories, they're, as well as holding on to that, as well as being um, distorting historians, um, they're also saying, so what are you going to do now? Are you going to use this energy? Um, and that future is really important. Um, it's important for me. Um, one of my sensibilities is quite a melancholy sensibility. Um, there's a lot of sorrow in my books, um, but there's also this sense of uh, there is a future. <laughs> I call it grim optimism. And uh, we, 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 we're going to get through this. 
Um, I'm going to witness this. You're going to witness it. We're going to do this together. Um, song is going to propel us into a better future. I know it's platitudinous, uh, but I still believe it. I still believe we can get that energy. Within your within your approach, song is deployed in different ways. I think to um, as it is in life, you know. I think to um, singing the sea in small world. Um, it's Korean in her grief. They say singing the sea, singing the sea. She lost him, lost her boy. She saw him lose himself. Kareen in her grief, they say, singing the sea. We, you know, when we mourn at funerals, things we we sing, you know, hymns and things like that. But when we're when we, obviously when we're you know joyous, we sing um, as as a signifier of that joy as well. And it's a sense of community that we get. And and in the owner of the sea, there is a lot of different instances of how song is used. And obviously, there it is, <laughs> a tool for. Um, uh, transportation, time travel, uh, if you will. So was that a, um, was this something that you created and a sort of narrative device or was this something that you had found within these stories that this was an idea that, that these Inuit cultures sort of held? Oh, travelling by song. No, no, that's that's within um, the transcripts and ideas. Oh, right, well. Um, so that's, um, that's not an invention at all. Um, that... Um, that's pretty close to to uh, to it. So, in fact, that is um, Kivu actually has a song. So, and that is um, something which the storytellers will uh, sing, um, and that's not like the rest of the storytelling. Uh, it, it's interesting that you talk about Kar the Kareem poem in Small World, because positioning is all there. Um, uh, this is the, um, the, the speaker listening to Corrine uh, Bailey Ray and her song, um, which is about losing her partner. Um, but it's placed within the hospital sequence where the speaker um, is literally thinking the same. The, the speaker uh, could well lose their partner. Um, and, you know, how's the throw of the dice going to go? Um, again, even though that's based on real life, there is a sense in small world of suspense. Um, it, it, it's how is it going to go? And um, because um, the final sequence small world was written in real time, um, that was real. Uh, my uh, then partner had had a brain hemorrhage um, was very, very ill. Um, it, it was on a knife edge. And um, listening to that and thinking, oh my God, um, how's it going to go? Um, and uh, luckily it didn't go that way. Well, pleased to hear that. <laughs> We're very happy to um, hear that. I don't know if you sort of alluded to it there, how song can also transform, uh, can sort of move, it moves, it moves you, it moves people, it moves you into a different state, different emotion. Um, and there's a lot of transitions in the owner of the sea, there's a lot of changes and metamorphoses. Well, I, th I think they're uh, probably layered onto each other. And you think about the Sedna myth. Now, Sedna is finally seduced by someone who can sing beautifully. 
when I say someone, it turns out they're not quite who you think they are. Um, they change, they change into another creature. Um, I was really interested in the way that Inuit culture has, um, at, at the very least, a doubleness. Um, almost any person is also an animal, and that animal can be a wolf, a seabird, a bear, all kinds of things. Um, and even the genders are fluid. So the small central piece um, is about um, a woman who changes into a man. The genders are really fluid, um, and I'm attracted to fluidity. I, um, I think, uh, first of all, it's, it's exciting just from an entertainment point of view, but it's actually, um, it's generous. It allows uh, change within an individual over time, but also it doesn't, it doesn't pin down someone to these huge clunking categories. Oh, you're that. And that's all you are. No, 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 you're not. Um, you may change over time and you may also be much more fluid at any, any point. Um, the, the Inuit tales also remind us very strongly that we are animals. Um, and you can see how um, this was unacceptable to uh, the, the Christian capitalists who came in. Um, they stripped that out very, very quickly. They were very, very uneasy about that. But not to raise Inuit people up, actually to control them. Um, so understanding that you are part of a very complicated continuum, um, not always a nice one. It's not all um, nicey-nicey eco. Um, but definitely part of the world and all the challenge of that, they didn't want that at all. They, they stripped that down. Uh, if anything, ironically, they made Inuit into movable animals, into pets, into a factory farm system that the residential school was. Um, and um, uh, luckily is now over. Um, but those attitudes still need fighting against. But Richard Price, it's been um, it's been an absolute pleasure hearing more about these. Um, for those who haven't bought the book yet, I, I I sort of implore them to go out and buy it because it's such a fascinating insight into uh, Inuit culture, but also poet, poetic art of retelling tales from different cultures and different areas. Uh, so thank you very much indeed for joining me uh, today. Well, thank you, Liam. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been great to be on the program. Thanks very much for joining me for another episode of the Reforming Pages podcast. The Owner of the Sea is out now and it's published by Car Connect. Next time, I'm going to be joined by Sarah Schofield and she's here to talk to me about her collection of short stories safely gathered and published by Common Prince. See you then.